0: Hey guys, before we get stuck into today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast and that is Unify Health Supplements. Unify have the most premium, high-quality science-backed products on the market in Australia today and you guys can use the code TFLP to save 10% off your next order at unifyactive.com. Unify has a range of products including whey protein isolate, plant-based protein, a pre-workout creatine monohydrate And their best selling product, the hydration formula. So, again, use that code TFLP to save 10% at unifyactive.com. Welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Kennedy, and I'm here to help you become the very best version of yourself. What's up, guys? Welcome back to this week's episode of the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast. Uh, Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Olympic gold medalist, world record holder for a certain period of time there, and someone who has now transitioned into the world of business and this was an extremely enjoyable conversation with our guest today, Duncan Armstrong. I know you guys are going to absolutely love this one. We we t- cover a number of different topics um, and there's something in this for absolutely everybody. So if you enjoy this conversation, we'd love for you to take a screenshot of this one, share it on your Instagram story, share it somewhere on social media, um, tag me in that as well, tag Duncan, and I'd just love to hear your feedback or simply to share the link with a friend. Um, all the support for the Fitness and Lifestyle podcast is much appreciated um, and it does help a lot. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Duncan Armstrong. Duncan, welcome to the Fitness and Lifestyle Podcast, mate. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Dan. I uh, love your work, mate. So uh, to be honest, is a real privilege. Thank you.
0: Appreciate that, mate. And um, speaking of loving your work, I think you'd be um, absolutely wrong of me to not dive straight into some of your incredible achievements, um, I think one that stands out, obviously, is that gold in the 88 Olympics, I believe it was, um, in the 200-meter freestyle. We've um, we've been fortunate enough to have a few swimmers on the podcast um, previously, so I'm looking forward to diving into it today. But, mate, take us back um, to 88 and and how the, the, I guess, your thought process and your mindset was prior to the race and then after it as well, after such an incredible achievement. Um, give us a, a bit of a rundown on on how that kind of day felt for you.
1: I don't think you were even born in 1988, were
0: you? Mate? No, mate. I was. A, I was still about five <laughs> years away from even being thought about. I think. <laughs> so Your I can't, mate's in I'm there. not going to make up any lies here and say that I watched it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, but I'll, I'll try to be descript, as descriptive as I possibly can be for somebody who wasn't born in the great year of 1988, when men were men. Um, Yeah, look, for me, uh, I'd trained with Laurie Lawrence here in Brisbane for about five years before making my first Olympic team. I'd had uh, some success at the Commonwealth Games, coming into the Olympic Games, but I really wasn't uh, anywhere near sort of the top guys in the world uh, about two years out. And my coach, Laurie, sort of, he challenged me. He said, do you think you're good enough? And I'm like, not at this level. You know, I was five, five, five seconds away in the 200 freestyle where I needed to be if I was going to be a real challenger for the 88 Olympic Games. So we knew that my my talent was training. I wasn't going to be the biggest in, at at six foot two, I was going to be nowhere near the biggest. At uh, around about 83 kilos, I was never going to be the strongest in terms of power. So we developed a, a training program that lasted two years and I barely won any races and I didn't really show any great racing form. But what I did do was develop a few exercises that no one else was doing. Um, that we'd pinched from overseas uh, trainers like uh, the Florida, Florida Gators and, and other sort of like really big, strong powerhouse teams, a couple of Russians. And we just incorporated a little bit of something that made me develop very, very quickly. And so we deployed them. Um, yeah, we got detail
0: about what, what they were.
1: Sure. So we found out in Florida that um, Randy Reese, a very, very good coach over there, was um, getting his swimmers to do what they call this exercise called wheels. And it's basically, to put it in your mind, it's just basically a a skateboard with the wheels turned broadside. And you put it on your knees and you get into almost a push-up position, which is the classic swimming position, really good core strength. And you drag yourself up on your hands with a pair of gardening gloves on up a hill. And Randy Reese was doing it around the stadium um access points so you know in some stadiums you have those ramps that go up like that he had his whole swim team basically doing this in a dry lane exercise uh, that was all about power strengthening through the shoulders through the back and again in that in that really hardcore push-up position which is Mm -hmm. mostly your swimming position so it was all about core strength and it just tears you up it just rips you apart it's very 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 difficult and after training every night Yeah. I lived on a good hill over at Carindale in Brisbane. So my dad would come out with me and I'd do a a number of wheels every single night after the 10Ks in the pool, after the running and after the gym, I would do the extras. And those extras really developed me very, very quickly. So all the other work that I was doing basically came out in a strength pyramid from those wheels and uh, did that. We also did a a number of, um, a, a lot of running. The last year coming into the Olympic Games, we worked out uh that we would that all the venues in seoul south korea were put on top of each other much like the sydney olympic games in 2000 um all those years later but in 1988 it was the first time the olympic games had been built with the village walking distance to the venues but it was over 500 meters in darwin heat so that's going to take the edge off you immediately if you're not ready for it so we ran we ran six k's wasn't fast we are swimmers for a reason um it was it was the best we could do, but we ran almost every single day for six to 12 months getting ready for the walk-in at the Olympic Games because when your race takes 1 minute and 47 seconds and the gun's going to go and then you've got a 40 clock until that gun goes again for that mm-hmm. race, you really want to make sure that the 1 minute and 47 seconds is your peak, you're in flow, and so you need all these tiny little um, extras in your mm-hmm. pocket just to give you the confidence that you can walk. The five the, the 500 meters to the pool six times in a day three sessions in the lead up and we got to the village 10 days out it was hot but maybe we were skipping to the pool because of all our running so
0: that's incredible damn.
1: did i win that race because of my swimming or did i win that race because of my running who knows Green, yeah <laughs> but it was definitely yeah, it was definitely an extra because my winning margin in in seoul was 0.19 of a second so yeah all these little extras and all these sort of like um, mindset, they sort of capture your mindset that anything is possible. And also when I stood on the blocks and I looked left and right and I was up against three world record holders who I've never beat, I was ranked 48th in the world. I was the big, I was the big unknown in that race. Mm-hmm. I didn't have X Factor. I didn't have reputation. Nobody was looking at lane number six. Uh, but I knew that we were going to swim super fast, the fastest I've ever done and that they were going to have to swim their best to beat me. And that's the way it unfolded. We came up with a really good race plan, Laurie and I, and I was able to execute it with flow on the day. And so I put together the best race that I possibly could. I reduced my time coming into the meet by four and a half, five seconds, and I was able to break break the old world record by 0.19 of a second and take the gold. And that was on day one of competition, the first time I ever stepped out at the Olympic Games. So that building process over those two years from the Commonwealth Games in 1986 to when I stood on the blocks on the 19th of September in 1988, um, I just did a block of training that suited me. I really worked out who and what I was. I stuck to my lane. I didn't get caught up with the comparison test of the six foot seven, the six foot eight mm-hmm. uh, world record holders that I had to tackle. I didn't look at their scrapbooks. I didn't look at their Ferraris. I didn't look at their basically um, their fame and fortune. We just basically stared at our lane and got in the water. And as soon as you do that. And it's BAU, business as usual. And again, I can't remember feeling tired in that race, worn out in that race or fatigue in that race. We'd hit a flow state that basically went four laps and my speed at the end of the four laps was as fast as my speed at the start. And so we, we prepared, right. We tapered, right. I had the mindset, right. We're able to block out all the distractions and live our dreams all in
0: one race. Mate, what an incredible story! You you mentioned then. There's a few things I want to kind of touch on off the back of that. So you mentioned uh the four and a half seconds shaved off. That was over the period of <laughs> was that two years? Was it? <laughs> yeah. So I
1: hadn't done a personal best time for two years, and so coming into the to the Olympic Games, uh, my 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 test sets were showing that I was going to swim really fast. Mm-hmm. And then between the final, there was 14 heats in the morning, and then eight finalists at night. I was in uh, heat 14. I took two seconds off. My heat time, PV, came into it, uh, the final and then took another two seconds off.
0: Wow. One other thing um before I get to to the next main point I wanted to talk about. Um you mentioned the the college system over in the States. Um and I mean we could probably talk about this all day on its own, but how do you find? Um, do you still think there's a huge, uh, like a significant gap or a significant difference in the development of, say, a college swimmer in the states compared to the type of programming that, uh, say, an Aussie junior swimming is swimmer is getting now? Because I look at, you know, being a past basketballer and and still heavily interested in basketball and even um, a lot of the conditioning and strength side of stuff from the NFL and American football and whatnot. The difference in the college structured programs and the facilities or the programming and the um, I guess the thing that the athletes are exposed to at a younger age there significantly outweighs what a, a junior athlete is kind of being exposed to over here in Australia. Is it still similar um, in that regard in the, the swimming side of things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it, there's some very strong parallels between all the, all the American college, uh, sorry, um, athletic programs, whether it be track and field, basketball, baseball, um, American football, swimming, all um, the Olympic sports. Um, they have pathways over there that are very, very, uh, they're grounded in so much history. Mm-hmm. They're grounded in so much support. Um, it, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a well-worn track and it, it clearly outdoes Australia. Their numbers over there are overwhelming. We have a, swimming is a very traditional and, and core sport in Australia. Everybody swims, simple yeah. as that. Everybody has raced across the pool at their primary school or secondary school at the local pool in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. We are super-duper water safe, so therefore everybody gets in the water in Australia. It's one of our core sports. At the Olympic Games, it's one of our number one sports. We've been winning gold medals and all types of medals since 1900 in swimming, every single Olympic Games. So it's it's one of these traditionally high-heritage sports in Australia, but our pathways um, are very challenging compared to the American model. Uh, what you're seeing in colleges over there, whether you're calling D1, D2, D3, you're talking about 40 or 50 athletes of similar age, adults getting together and, and, and moving forward in a common cause for the university. So you have this huge maturity set that we don't enjoy in Australia as we have 12 year olds, 13 year olds up with our 20 year olds, 25 year olds. And our coaches aren't supported as well as the coaches over there. And our swimming is not as big um, as a, as a market as it is over there. So, when you look at it, australia it does extremely well on the world stage with what we have mm-hmm. and uh, we have to go outside our uni- outside our swim school swim programs to get university trained so you're juggling you're juggling you're going over to uni you're finishing there you're running back you're trying to get your classes to be done at the same time so you can get your strength and weight training done in swimming and so yeah it is more complex down here it's more difficult to do but because it's a traditional sport we are more accepting of those challenges. So this is the way it's always been done. This is the way we have done it. And we're getting great results because of it. When we look at the American model, it's completely different. They balance up their Olympic programs with their college programs. The seasons are absolutely seamless. They have professional coaches being paid great wages. So mm-hmm. therefore, their, their, their skill base and their community is so strong to keep learning. So their, their coaches seem to be into all the breakthroughs earlier than the Australian coaches just because they're so well supported financially with mm-hmm. this juggernaut of a college, a D1 school, a D2 school, you know all about it. It's mm-hmm. it's just packed full of support, packed full of facilities and packed to actually give you an education, whether you make the Olympic games or not. And so you, with that support, you get a happier swimmer and you get a smarter swimmer and you get more support. Simple as that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now I did my, um, did my research before, before we jumped on today. And I, I watched the clip actually, um, of the, of the gold medal race. And, you know, you've mentioned, um, a number of times already just in this conversation now, um, I guess you've referred to flow state, um, and, and being mm-hmm. in a headspace. and, and I'm, I'm assuming maybe you mean physically as well with the flow in the pool, mm-hmm. but prior, at the start of the race, when they're doing all the announcing of all the athletes and you're on the blocks, um, I believe there was a false start as well, which would probably throw you off even mm-hmm. more. Um, what was your mindset, and how did you get into that mindset? Was it the fact that you knew you'd done all the work with the training? Um, you've already mentioned that you, you hadn't been competitive with these other guys you're up against up until that point. So, how did you bring yourself to the to the headspace of um, of having that self belief and just sticking to the game plan and not letting the uh, I guess the occasion overcome you? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's 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 actually a good way of putting it. The over the occasion of the Olympic Games is overcoming. Simple as that. Just the way you said it. So many gold medals have just been burnt because you're 20 minutes out on deck and you know the four-year clock is about to stop. Your mates are in the stand, the TVs are on, the Olympic bunting is everywhere. You're living your dreams. And so it can be very distracting or very off-putting. But for years, i have been, been trained by Laurie Lawrence, and Laurie was their premier Coach, he'd taken 15-year-olds like Steve Holland into 15 world records. Tracy Wickham is a 12-year-old into a world record, winning world championships. He really understood the environment, the arena, and he also understood what's coming. So Laurie had a huge amount of psychology, which is an issue, <laughs> the way yeah. he does it. But, he, but basically, he came up with these uh, foundation statements that you could live by. Yeah. And one of the foundation statements, you know, which is completely Australian, is someone's got to win these bloody races. It might as well be us right yeah and so that was the belief you know that was the underpinning of um having a go having to dig you know getting after it. all these sort of terms that they roll in your mind to be able to release the pressure as you go through these environments of extreme intensity Mm -hmm. and so with this going on and having other swimmers in our squad who you train next to have already won Like, my my best training partner at that time getting ready for the 80 Olympic Games was a 17-year-old gold medalist from 1984 named John Sieber. Wow. And he won the 200 meters butterfly as a 17-year-old. So same environment, Mm -hmm. my mate, normalizing the intensity, telling us stories. And Laurie's job was also to impact us, to open our mind to this. So to do that, he would have all these Olympic champions running at us all the time. And I remember Herb Elliott came down one time, and Herb Elliott is – Just one of the greatest men and greatest Olympians Australia's ever produced. In 1960, Herb Elliott won the 1,500 metres in a time that would have won bronze medal 36 years later, nine
0: games later. Wow. That's
1: incredible. Like, incredible. Like, genius. And Herb was a really gentle bloke, and he came in, and we had six or seven swimmers in the Laurie Lawrence swim team who were going to the Olympics that year in 1988. And And Herb was in town. Laurie went and lassoed him because Laurie's the most magnetic and attractive man you've ever seen. So Laurie's gone, grab grab Herb, come and talk to my kids, tell them about the Olympic Games, tell them what to expect. So Herb gets there, and there's just you know, seven or eight chlorine swimmers sitting in front of him, and you know he starts off like this, and he goes, what do you reckon you're going to do on the deck at the Olympic Games when you're about to swim your race? The four-year clock is about to stop. The pressure is on. What are you going to do? Dunk it. Tell us what you're going to do. And so, you know, and I've got in my mind what's going to happen. So I tell him my fantasy. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to point at my teammates. I'm going to, you know, stand there. I'm going to give it to this guy in the marshroom. I'm give it to this guy in the marshroom. I'm going to tear him apart. I'm going to stand there. I'm going to rip it. And Herb just started laughing. He goes, no, you're not, mate. All you're going to do is want to run off deck. If someone gives you the ticket to get off deck with your dignity, you'll take it. You're going to be shitting yourself. You're going to be so scared. You're going to get this mystery this mystery um, injury that's going to start in your ankle, run to your knee, up into your groin, uh, and into your heart. And you're going to think you're dying. Okay? Every single piece of your equipment is going to break, and you're going to shit yourself because you nearly haven't got your favourite gold. I'm looking at it now. This is the worst pep talk I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. God. But eight months later, I go out on deck. Dog will snap. It's okay. I got two spares because her told me my dogs are gonna snap. Yeah. My dogs are almost cutting me in half because back in the day we used to we use wear boys size six. I just squeeze ourselves into because you didn't want any air in it. Yeah. And so my dogs my are like literally cutting my balls off yeah that time. <laughs> I've got I got this mystery thing running up my leg and my legs will not stop shaking because I'm so shit scared.
0: Yeah, right. right.
1: But inside. Because Herbs told me this and I've thought about it for eight months and I've prepared for it to happen, I'm sweet. Mm-hmm. I'm just sitting there going, Man, I'm gonna be in the water, just get me in the water, just get me in the water. But everything that, and see, this is the this is about the experience, and this is where Laurie was very, very good. He brought experienced people to tell us the truth yeah. about what we're about to face. So when it comes down to the clock's stopping, this gun's going. I can't hold these guys back. I can't control anybody else. But what I can do is control myself and get in and do my job. And that's what we do.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. And you know, we'll obviously dive into a bit of the business side of things today as well. But that's something that I've really um been conscious of lately. And it's what I'm I'm hearing it come up a lot with the different um content that I've been listening or reading or, or watching um is as important as as it is to be super positive and have your specific goals and, and do your visualizations of exactly what you do want to achieve. You, I think it was uh, Dr. John D. um was on the show last year and he made this really incredible point. He's like, you have to be able to envision the the opposite of what you want as well. You have to be able to understand that that is a possibility as well. And I don't know what your opinion is kind of sounds similar to what you've kind of just spoke about in terms of, Yes, we, we, we want this certain outcome to happen, but we also have to understand that there is other possibilities as well. And when we can, once we can wrap our head around that and we can wrap our head around the fact that not everything's going to be this linear progression, it's not always, it's going to be exactly how we envision it, then we're prepared for it. But so many people just have this one goal in mind and, and have absolutely zero thought to what other possibilities there may be or, or what may go wrong. And, and when it does happen, if it inevitably does happen, Almost just shit ourselves and and have absolutely no idea how to handle it because it's not something we've ever even considered before. Is that something that you now in the business world have have also kind of carried over with your mindset in that regard?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Dan, and and I like the way you explained it, mate, because um, you don't have to prepare for everything, but you you do have to build up build up a certain amount of resiliency to whatever comes over the horizon, right? mm-hmm. and that's what Herb was doing with us, and Herb even went from resiliency to redundancy, you know, like where, where are the stop gaps? you know, where's your extra gear? It's up to you because no one gives a shit. You can't have an excuse that I'm sick today at the Olympic games. You can't have an excuse that, you know, my goggles broke. You know, the, you've got to be, have your redundancies all, all mapped out that if that shuts down, I've got another path. If that shuts down, I've got another path. And that then creeps into resiliency because like um, experience really, really counts and you know life's a great teacher but you can have the best laid plans and mike tyson said everyone's got a great plan until you get punched in the face Mm -hmm. you know so you've got this going on but sometimes the punch in the face is the most important thing that's going to happen to me in this iteration of my success Mm -hmm. right sometimes it is absolutely falling on your face and failing which actually gets you ready for your next success and as you know like I had so many meets be- between the Olympic games and when I started in the sport, so many meets, so many fails, mm-hmm. so many falling on my face, so many broken goggles, so many this, so many the, 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 but I'd never been to the Olympics before. But all those little fights were getting me ready for the intensity of the Olympic games. And, yeah. and sometimes we have to take just a breath to sort of like work out where are we at in terms of our success in business, sport, and every- anything we're pursuing because like, that was almost my best self at the Olympic games in the biggest arena with the most intensity. That was almost my best self in swimming. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to replicate that performance in any way, shape or form in other meets afterwards. I went to another Olympic games, I went to many other things, but that was the moment. That was the big show for me in my swimming career. And yeah, that was disappointing. I couldn't do it again. It was disappointing because I had plans to do it again. It was very disappointing. But when I look back at it now with a fair bit of experience, I can now look at the journey that i was on until that point and then how distracted i was after that point okay yeah and then trying to recapture the magic which was uh a mistake that mm-hmm. took me you mm-hmm. know four years and you know you listen to great performers um say in rugby league or rugby union you know, like johnny wilkinson you know after the world cup in 2003 when he beat australia at stadium australia with that kick right at the death to take the world cup for england try to replicate that st- success for about four years afterwards it had 14 injuries in four years. So your body, and I had, had a similar thing that I had all these injuries after that big win that I just could not get my form back. And my body was basically telling me there's a dissonance between your dreams, hopes, and what's name and what and what you actually want to be doing here. Mm-hmm. And so I had this disconnect and my body just showed that disconnect in the way it got injured a lot.
0: Yeah. I mean I love that um the you know the adversity side of things it's like what's well, the saying um those who are willing to fail the most are typically the ones who who will be the the win the most as well with your when you finally decided that um i don't know how you refer to this in in swimming terms terms hang up the flippers or put the hang up the goggles or whatever <laughs>
1: Retirement. once you hang decide, up the dogs
0: hang hang up up yeah once you decide you want to retire from professional swimming um <clears throat> what was that transition like into into business or what were the steps that you kind of took immediately post um, your swimming career to kind of, I guess, take that next step in life. Um, You know, I've Mm -hmm. been fortunate enough to become good mates with, with Michael Klim and I I remember having multiple Mm -hmm. conversations with Klimi around how difficult he found it initially um, to, to make that transition, particularly having been a professional athlete for, for such a long period of time. There was a lot of things that, you know, most people that are probably listening to this at the moment, wouldn't put any thought to, but it's probably things that, um, you know, for a professional athlete, maybe things I've never even had to worry about or do in their life, um, previously. And, and I think you're seeing now, particularly with, um, athletes, whether it be football or whatever it is, um, starting to put a bit more thought to, to life after sport, because in the end of the day, when you look at it, it's a relatively short period, um, of your life, which, is, which is good to see, but what were the steps you took to transition into, um, the next chapter of your life?
1: I wish I could say uh, that I actually was deliberate in those steps then. Uh But, you know, Glimmy did so much winning, so much more winning than me. His, his career was so much longer than mine. And so, you know, if you've got an insight into what Clemmy went through, it was a, pretty much the same for me. It's a, it's a huge identity shift because, you know, for you, you're recognisable for one word. People say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a swimmer. And everybody gets it. Yep. Right. And there's so much uh, ego, there's so much constructed in that one thing. Mm. And then you hang, hang up the togs and hang up the goggles, as you say. And then you've got to redefine yourself. But you've had 20 years, you know, everybody's had a 20-year head start on you. So you're entering business without any real skill set. Now, you're very gifted in time management. You're very gifted in goal setting. You're very gifted in um, suffering, um, going yeah. through the hard work um spotting a goal moving towards it being disciplined you're a superstar and all these sort of like um attributes and traits but when you enter the public domain or a business to make like what else can give you the intensity of a swimming career what basketball career what you know olympics what 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 in business is an olympic type thing what Name and,
0: and i would imagine so you're doing without right? Just quickly, I would imagine as well, it's the first time for someone like yourself to have been in a beginner phase of basically anything. As you Mm. said, you've got the the work ethic, the the resilience, the time management and whatnot. But I mean, how many years since it's since you've picked up something that you're just having to learn basically from scratch? It would be a a very um unfamiliar experience or feeling, I would imagine. Yeah,
1: no, you're right. You're right, Dan. I didn't really think about that. But yeah, actually, yeah, you do feel like a first time. Improve pretty much everything you do. You know, first time you go to meetings, first time you you know hold meetings, first time. So I went into the media because I identified the media as sort of like a meritocracy, that a little bit like the swimming career, that you go good in media, you get paid for it. You get more opportunity. You go forward, you know, and it's, and, and it's all there for you to see. So it's a little, a little bit like on the blocks. There's nowhere to hide in the blocks. You know, you get on the blocks in swimming and this is why you need so much courage. You're wearing you know, very, very small dick stickers. You're up against some pretty big baboons and they can all make you look pretty stupid pretty quickly. And yep. you've got a stand full of people and the television going. So for me, the television part or the media sort of provided me with that little bit of sameness, a little bit of, I know what's going on here, a little bit of, you know, you're only as good as your next program, you know, so it was all kind of fitting together. And and I got to work in radio, and then I, I shifted into television with Fox Sports around about uh, 18 months after my start. And so then off to, off, off to the races with Channel 9 for the next 14 years in and, mm. and Fox Sports, and I found a home there. But it wasn't easy. I wasn't a pleasant person because I was so uncomfortable all the time and trying to beat everybody. So I took a long time to transition this uh, unbelievable attitude of competition. Like I was just such a bore in every true sense of the word, I just bored people to death with how much I was supposed to know and all these sort of things. Cause I was so uncomfortable in trying to win everything. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't a good team member. I wasn't a good employee. I wasn't a good anything. I was just ripping and tearing and trying to get in front of everybody. And I was getting exhausted and sick by it because, you know, that much energy drain with the comparison going out all the time and trying to shuck and drive and trying to, you know build this career and I was doing very well. I was a success in all of those sort of parameters that people would recognize, but inside I had trouble with drugs, I had trouble with alcohol. Uh, I had terrible trouble with relationships as I was trying to be a winner in everything I did. it mm. you know, took me took me a long time to work that out and some good people to surround me to bring me out of this sort of like uh, win it or cost attitude that I thought, this worked at the Olympics. That early success, I can replicate that. So let's do that. And it's just completely inhumane to any everybody around you, especially yourself.
0: What was the catalyst for that self awareness? I guess around the things you've kind of just touched on in terms of having to change. I guess your maybe your attitude or just broken
1: relationships. Yep. Yeah, broken relationships. As I went forward, but, you know, I was in relationship with some really really good people, and and I wasn't treating them well wasn't mm-hmm. treating myself well, so I wasn't treating them well. And, and uh, the right girl came along, and then the right girl was w- walking out the door. And right. that was a real shift for me to sort of say, you're now becoming pathetic. You are now about to go and make all these mistakes, which you know are mistakes, all to keep your image up, mm-hmm. to be something uh, that you cannot do. It's making you sick. And the only way that you can sustain this is drug, sex, and rock and roll." And uh, at, at the age of 37, I was just like, I was not up for that again. So I had to make some big changes in my life, which I did successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, kept the girl, been married 18 years. Right. Um, got years. three beautiful kids together with Rebecca. Yeah. Yep. So it's a good news story in the end. And I'm very happy that I've gone through that journey to
0: mm-hmm. give me
1: the tool set that I've got today to face a more sustainable outlook that provides more service to others. In a humble way with humility and a more openness to be able to take that journey and make something good out of
0: it amazing have you are you aware of uh david Meltzer? have you ever consumed any of david's content no i'd love to i'd love to i'll I'll flick you a link after we wrap up this i think Mm. he's someone that you would resonate um quite well with in terms of i guess similarities in in, i guess your your story so far so i'll send him across a link to you after this um so outside of swimming so you wrap up your career you're you're now in uh, in the media and whatnot were you having been having spent so long sorry um with this regimen of of obviously training physically flat out mentally preparing yourself for competition and whatnot is that something you then carried over into your own physical fitness post career as well did you keep up the 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 physical fitness side of things or did you find that you finally just needed a bit of a break and, and then fell out of routine with everything that you'd kind of been doing physically yeah,
1: look, I put two kilos, two kilos on a week. The moment I got out of the pool, Dan, I put two kilos on a week for eight months straight. So I stacked on about 40, 42 kilos in eight months. And then I peaked. Right. <laughs> and I was drinking, stinking, trying to get away from this thing that I just left behind. So I was in pain, basically. Yeah. Yeah. In pain because I didn't know who and what I was. Mm-hmm. And I everything I was known for, was now in the rear vision group. Mm. I found that difficult. I found my last couple of years as a swimmer, very difficult with injury and and uh, unfulfilled, unfulfilled, um, uh, goal sets. And so when I got out of that, I, I had this real reaction to myself. I was in radio, so it didn't really count in terms of image. Um, and then I got into TV and I was still, uh, how could I put this? I, I was still hurting myself. Um, running around and having a great time and uh and then i went for a run at the park with a mate who i always thought was overweight and nowhere near my fitness fitness ability and around centennial parks uh long track he pumped me right. killed me, and that was it i was just looking at him like okay and within three weeks i was in front of him and then the weight came off and then i started more healthy exercises like triathlon a little bit of rowing awesome. bit of karate uh, got into the weights room, fell in love with the weights room. Then I did about twelve years of cycling. Came back yep. to the weights room, and uh, and still remain very healthy in the weights room. I love uh, People always say, you know, what exercises do you do now? And I say, I I, I love the gym because of the mirrors.
0: <laughs> awesome, don't all?
1: They go, oh, right. and they don't know what to say. They look at you and go, is he serious? <laughs> they go, oh mate, the mirrors are my best exercise. <laughs> love it. Love problem. that! So I have a bit of a laugh and a giggle, so I don't take myself too seriously. And about um, eighteen months ago, I suffered a, a very large heart attack, so I needed a triple bypass open heart surgery. I uh, didn't even know I had a calcium buildup. Didn't even know I was I was sick at the time, and I just finished a really great workout forty minutes before that. And so I'm slowly getting back to the gym now. After eighteen months, my health is restored, feel good, but I wasn't very healthy getting out of the water had a lot of issues that i needed to work out it took a lot of years to work those issues out mm-hmm. but exercise was a major part of that all the way
0: through so mate was there any any warning signs leading to the um to the heart issues and i guess what i'm assuming it would have been quite a, a, a scary experience um and are you able to kind of run us through that i mean obviously uh particularly in the last 12 to 24 months um for whatever reason, seems like they uh, their heart issues seem to be climbing up a little bit. So, yeah, was there any kind of warnings leading up to that? And uh, had to modify too much post um, the triple bypass.
1: Yeah, Dan, it took me by surprise and it, it gave me an absolute fright. Um, I've got a very healthy ego, as you can tell, and so my my view of myself was was not as a sick person at all. Now, my mum has had triple bypass, and her family's had stroke, but because my mum looks at life very very different from mine i was not i didn't i didn't attach myself to that and uh you know but i you know when i look back at my diet and the amount of work i've done on my diet in the last 18 months because of it it's been very, very telling that i've been very ignorant and uh very egotistical not to get myself checked out with a ct calcium scan um that would have you know shown years and years ago that my on and, and you know the 80s was there was no supplements. There was no, mm. um, you know, sports science diet diet wise. You know, like I was eating fifty wheat picks a day, every single day, um, a cheesecake and a, 50. And a um, Christmas cake three times a week, um, and then the meals around that, just just to get the calories because I was burning about six to seven thousand a day. We're doing twenty k's in the water with Jim and running during the week, uh, wheels and all the other extras. Mm. So you know, eating every ninety minutes uh, just to keep the weight on. Um, uh, to be able to swim the 200. 200 is a combination between power and stamina. So I was too small for it. So I needed to put on that 20 kilos um, or 15 kilos to actually compete and compete fast. So therefore, I basically ate it. And um, all the way along, I was just building up this calcium, um, which is hereditary and uh, part of my my DNA from my parents. So um, it's a family issue. I wasn't addressing it. I got to the 52 years of age, or it seems to be the heart attack age with warning and, and others, um, and been to the gym, went back to work, punching away for about 45 minutes, ate a banana after work, after the workout and just felt I just basically monstered the banana a little bit too much. And I was getting a bit of indigestion. Uh, got down to the car, drove off to get the kids from school. Uh, by the time I got to school, it was all over me. I was down my arm. It was in my chest. And as I got to school to pick them up, pick the kids up, I was there early, um, the penny dropped. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm having a heart attack. And so I drove myself seven minutes to a hospital around the corner, walked in the door, saw the the receptionist and said, I'm in a bit of trouble here. And then just basically had a full-blown collapse. And they came out and saved my life, sprayed under my tongue, pain went away, disappeared. It's like a miracle. Had the tests, went for an NGO that night. They cracked my chest the next day gave me some new plumbing triple bypass and then i was on the road to recovery most pain i've ever felt felt disabled felt frail never had these situations in my life before but felt completely um, blessed to be alive and you know about four days later as the recovery goes and they pumped so much juice into me so much fluid and then it all just came out that basically I went from 92 kilos to about 98 kilos in 24 hours, 48 hours. And then, you know, back down and uh, I got to the bathroom about four days into it and looked at myself in the mirror and I couldn't, didn't recognize myself. I was gray. My skin was hanging off me. I'd just been through this ideal. Never been through anything like that before. Just felt so miserable, so lost. And, uh, they took me downstairs, surprisingly, like I had, it, I was having all these x-rays in bed where they just hit you up and hit you with the x-ray just to make sure that the bindings were there and the stitches mm-hmm. were good and, and uh, all good. And this young bloke comes in, he goes, jump in, mate. I jump into a, a wheelchair. I've got a gown on. I'm very conscious. My ass is touching the leather of the, of the, uh, of the chair and out, out of the room and I hadn't left my room. I'd kept it shut. I was isolated just the way I wanted it. I was, I was you know really struggling. He takes me downstairs two or three floors down in the hospital to a public area and there's people just walking past having lunch and in day clothes and and i'm just sitting there and i'm parked up near this poor little old lady who's you know really crook in this bed and just parked in these bays waiting for. and mate i just put my head down and just started crying i was just like man i didn't sign up for this mm. i didn't ask for this i'm out of control i'm not in control and this little voice says well mate this is your community because what's the alternative do you want to go to the other community and made everything just dropped you know humility yeah. came back i'm like oh, i can't run. I just was able to gather my breath and from there on the recovery went really really well and really happy with it today weights back down just to 90 kilos that seems to be my sweet spot at six foot two yeah um, that gives me enough power to lift at the gym and do the surfing with the kids and things like that so that's that's basically where I'm at and I'm not really searching for anything too much I don't really have any challenges like a triathlon or a marathon or a a race I don't have any competition in my life anymore Mm -hmm. I'm really settled with that uh, which is quite surprising but I'm I'm feeling very healthy and very blessed
0: amazing now did your did your journey um with faith start after this or prior Mm -hmm. to this and are you able to if you're happy to or comfortable to talk a little bit a bit about about that
1: yeah i can we can fill up the rest of the podcast with him if you want uh (laughs) i came to fight i came to faith when i was 37 when i was being that pathetic self and the girl that i was uh had been with for eight years rebecca who was to become my wife uh basically started attending church she was searching for much much more than you know whatever lifestyle we'd put together with the with the uh, possessions and the toys Mm. and the people and the parties and the status and the reputation building and all not building around that stage. She'd had enough. And girls were always smarter than boys. So she started going to church and she was starting to have encounters. And to keep her, I was going to have to go to church and I had an encounter with, with the Lord Jesus Christ around about my sixth visit to church. Wasn't asking for it. Wasn't looking at it. Wasn't looking for it. I was mocking it, basically. I was mocking church. And then I had this encounter that was just completely uncompromising, not of this world and uh, completely for me. And that's when I started to get all the bullshit that I was believing in and transforming it into something more real and underpinned with something more based, sustainable, uh, humble, graceful, joyous, colorful, and deep. And those all things happen with this um, growing relationship I've had with Jesus for the last 18 years. So, when i went through that heart attack i had a very very strong faith and i was never alone i was never lost uh i was my faith was you know absolutely what these times are for and so even though i uh, was entering the frail community for the first time you know i didn't spend long there it happened for a reason i'm so glad that you know he's got more work for me to do and i get get to watch my kids grow and stuff like that. And uh, yeah there's a lot of things to do so my faith is a really really important underpinning in everything I do. And uh and so therefore when I look at that hyper competitiveness that I needed to control outcomes. Yeah. My faith now comes and replaces that with um there are many things are going to happen. Some challenging, some joyous. But it's all happening around me and to me at the same time. I have a distance on it now, which Mm -hmm. before I was right in the trench with it, and was I was always travelling up to a high or down to a low, up to a high, down Mm -hmm. to a low. Now I'm more disconnected in terms of the highs and lows, and I've got this joy in my life and the sustainability and feeling uh, that my faith gives me. And with that comes like-minded men. You know, my faith has unlocked the community of men for me that I was never going to do in my hyper-competitive state. Yep. So because my faith has come along and I I walk this path with so many good men, great men, I've got community for the first time. I'm not competitive with any of them, and there's a joy around it that makes me complete. And my wife is like that with with, with the women's groups. We are like that with our church. My kids get to witness us in this space, and the Mm. kids are always watching, always looking for authenticity, always looking to be guided by truth. And because we're into these really, really good circles and people, we have this uh, real ability to um, enjoy life for what it's worth.
0: Amazing. It sounds all, you know, I, I t- try to do a lot of uh, personal development and, and whatnot as well. Mm. Um, and it, it's, to me sounds like you almost just surrendered to everything. As you said, let go of, mm. I guess, the, the resistance to try and control everything and, and just surrender, um, which is a. Mm. a Incredible feeling of, I guess, weightlessness almost. It just kind of feels like the whole mm-hmm. way the world's off your shoulders. Having been through so many, I guess you'd call it transitions, you know, from professional athlete to then the period of your life, as you mentioned, where things are probably a little out of control, um, the whole identity thing and then um, putting the focus towards media and then the faith side of things and then, and then the the health scare as well. How do you now, I guess, define um, success in comparison to how you would have defined success back when you were a competitive swimmer, or even post career, yes, yeah, so I
1: talk about my from positions. I've come from a position, and I'm moving to a position. So the mm-hmm. from and tos. Okay, and that's how I break out everything. So is I if I'm if I'm needing to sort of like look at where I'm at um, on any particular topic. So you've just asked me, you know what's the comparison from? how I defined success back in the day to what I do to find success now. And and a lot of it is about uh, where I spend my energy. And I've said the word half a dozen times now, sustainability. And I came across, you know, um, an addict on a TED talk who basically put down this three-step process to help him release a little bit of his addictions and sort of like dependencies and stuff. And it's, it's, it's wrapped up in the 12 steps and it's basically like, Rigorous authenticity in everything you do. Surrendering the outcome of that and making sure you're doing things that make you uncomfortable for the tension and growth. Mm-hmm. Right? So my business partner and I in and this new business called Peak Impact Consultancy, we, we live by this cultural trinity that basically we are going to be rigorous and authentic. And that's a two position because back where I was, my success was uh, measured on how much people liked me, yep. how popular I was, um, how, how 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 impressive I could be, how many toys that I had, what possessions did I have, you know, where I've been for holiday, what I'm doing, my after dinner conversation and head bobbling nonsense, yeah. you know, it had nothing to do with this um, rigorous authenticity. It's actually the opposite of rigorous opposite. authenticity. I'm just going to tell you a bunch of stories, and you're going to like me. So when you look at whether you can sustain that shit, the answer is absolutely not. Mm-hmm because you're not going to please everybody no matter how good you are at all this sort of communication stuff. And so you're going to fail. And so I was setting myself up for failure and disappointment all the time. And that's my front position. But the two position is like, no, I'm going to be rigorously authentic with you. And I'm going to surrender to the outcome of what you think of that because you're a man and I'm a man and I don't need to impress you with all these stories and everything like that. I'm just going to be authentic. I'm going to release that, surrender it. And I'm going to keep on doing things that are challenging me. I'm going to keep on learning things. I'm going to keep on growing and putting myself under tension to get that growth in the right areas. And that's all I'm on about. And so all of a sudden, your capacity arrives back because if you're only thinking about that now and you're not tethered to the personality traits you put together because you needed to adapt to a situation and your fears and your pain mm. internally. So if I'm not going to tether myself to who everybody thinks I am, or reputation, what I've built over the years, good and bad. I'm not going to tether myself to the past and I'm not going to, like, you know, terrorize myself with a future that may never happen. Yep. And I live right now with authenticity with you and I. It gives me all this capacity back, all this energy back, just to have this conversation, just mm-hmm. to be real, surrendering the outcome, not worrying about it, and moving on to the next hour, next two hours yep. today, because we only get today the daily bread. You know, Jesus in the Bible is always telling us, fear not, fear not, fear not. Mm-hmm. And that's all about fear in the future. Where are we going? What are we doing?
0: Yep. You know,
1: I give you this day our daily bread, and you've only got 24 hours to stuff things out. You could be gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a fatalist. I'm not like, oh, look what happened to me. Almost took my life. Now I've got to live for today. I'm not like that at all. I love planning. Yep. I love thinking about the future, but I don't get caught up on what if this doesn't work in the fears of the future Mm -hmm. and that's tricky and i'm always getting there but that's what i'm shooting for and that's my two position from all that shit i used to do
0: i love that um the part about you know being completely present and being uh, i guess exactly where um your feet are is is a quote that a recent guest kind of um, uh, stated as. um there's someone have you heard of brendan bachard have you seen any of his content before
1: i think i might have
0: funnily enough he's actually enough. uh i believe he's a um he's a uh how do i put it he's a man of faith as well he's a, he's massive in the personal development space but anyway he one of the the key things i've taken away from his content up until this point um and something that i try and use as often as i can which seriously helps with with being present but also getting the most out of as you said each little block throughout the day um is this little practice he does where literally before he talks about transitions in the day. So, you know, after this podcast, you and I will both have a transition into whatever we're about to do next. Both will be completely different, no doubt. But in those transitions is is taking 30 seconds to to focus on some deep breaths, close the eyes, think about what you're about to do next. Think about what you want to get out of it. If it's with someone else, what you hope they are going to get out of it. And thirdly, what you need to do to make sure both of those things happen and it blew my mind at how, how much more productive i was how much more present i was and how much probably things that i was missing previously when you think about something as simple as going to have a meeting or a coffee with a mate and you're sitting there and, and although you're right in front of the other person you're probably thinking of every other thing you've got to do for the day or checking your phone every two minutes and, and whatnot and yeah it blew my mind at how effective it was and it's something that i try and do quite often and i, I mean it it's amazing how much of a game changer it is in terms of productivity throughout the day and, and how much more you can get done and how more effective you can be at every single little thing that you, that you do.
1: Yeah. It's a real circuit breaker, isn't it? Mm. Like that, that small mindfulness habit of the deep breaths filling your, filling your, your body with as much pure oxygen as you possibly can. It's a circuit breaker. And I've been into transitions a really, really long time. And I really like that. And, I'll look up Brendan's work for sure because yeah. um when I would fly around all the time um doing my presentation work, the energy's going this way, like audience, big audience, mm-hmm. small audience. I might do three one hours in Sydney in a day, fly back to Brisbane. And I'd and I'd hit the door after a big day, fly down in the morning, do your two, fly back at night. And the kids, of course, here hit the door, just all over you, know, yeah. just a wonderful scene and everything like that. But I could I couldn't partake of it. You know, because I'm still at work. Yep. I'm still fighting traffic. I'm still getting in and out of an airport, you know, stress, 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 stress. And then my wife Bex looked to me and going, This is not good. You know, this is not working. You know, you either change work or you work this out. I just went on the internet. I go, how do you transition from work? Found a couple of like Brendan's, had a couple of techniques, and I just started incorporating like my trigger was the plane hitting the ground in Brisbane. Bag. I'm now one hour from home. By the time I get out of my seat, do the thing, get uh-huh. in the gym, one hour. So then laptop, book, everything goes away. And I start thinking about what I know the kids have done today. So it's exactly what you say. Mm-hmm. You know, think of something else, single what their day is doing. Yeah. You know? And so I do do this sort of like arithmetic in my head. And then the Uber driver or the cab driver will get it. He's the warm-up. Yeah. So how are you, mate? Where are you from? How long have you been doing this? You've got any kids for yeah. and then If I can't talk to him, I'm not ready yet. So then the intensity picks up in the transition, and then by the time I get to the door, and the pack of baboons hit me, I'm ready. I look at my daughter and go, "What about this test?" And I'll have it this and footies this afternoon. And what have you? And you're in your transition, and you're getting the goodness out of that moment that dad should have. It works behind you, yeah, just enough that you transition. So, yeah, I'll have a look at Brendan for sure because I'm into that. Yeah. I'm into coming in and out of my day and getting the most out of it instead of walking into the kitchen and I'm still out in my office. Yep. And yep. everyone asks you a question. I'm like, oh, eh? what? Really? You know, and you're missing it. Yeah. Missing it. You know, you've wrapped up work for the day, but you're still not still out there, of work for the mentally. Day.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's good, is it?
0: Mate, this has been awesome. Um, I've actually really, really enjoyed it. Um, this chat before we do wrap up though um i'd love to hear a little bit about the new consulting um business and i guess what what that's all about and and what you and your business partner i guess are, are offering and, and the areas that you're trying to really focus in on
1: well i've been i've been successful in business there and i've been unsuccessful in business but uh in the last 18 months i've put my shingle out it's called peak impact consulting services i work with my business partner his truckers uh, we're both ex-colleagues in Telstra and other places. And um, we've got something that we really enjoy doing. We've got three pillars of activity. We've got the one-off work, motivational, inspirational work on stage. We've got facilitating and hosting events as the MC or host. Uh, we've got ambassador work where we represent corporations in an extended version of that, you know, uh, partnering with our brand, my brand, personal brand, and other brands. And then we have leadership consulting work where we do one-on-one work Pretty much like this podcast is all about, we find out who and what you are as a leader um, or an executive, and we try to um, bring some clarity into how you lead and what your daily habits are like to be able to produce those results that you really want. So we do three or four different things. We're slanted towards the 2032 Olympics build-up here in Southeast Queensland. There's seven councils going to be delivering the Olympics in 10 years' time. We've got a lot of expertise and IP in terms of all of that from my broadcasting or career athletic career and my part in the build up towards the Sydney 2000 olympic games 22 years ago so that's the spiel that's the pitch if anybody's watching just go online find us at peak impact consulting services we're available
0: unreal and i'll, I'll have a link to any of your socials and, and the website and where people can find some more info or reach out in the show notes below um but Duncan, thanks a lot, mate. Uh, as I said, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure the audience has as well. And for anyone who is listening or watching at the moment, uh, if you have taken some value from this conversation, which I'm sure you would have, we would love for you to share it, uh, whether it be a screenshot posted on your Instagram story, send a link to a friend or a family member. As um, many people that can uh, tune in and take some value from this, the better. Uh, so thanks again, mate. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no worries, Dan. I think you've got a really great product, mate. You told you such interesting people and you really bring the best of yourself every single time. So I appreciate you, mate. Thank you.
0: Thank you.